It's not a mental disorder. It's a sense of being afraid that you're going to be exposed as a fraud. My line is always, if when someone introduces you and talks about your credentials and you cringe and think you won't live up to those, that's imposter syndrome. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by Associate Dean Phil Powell. As you know, the show's mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, we just want to welcome you to our Kelly family. And if you're an aspiring leader like most of our Associate Dean Phil Powell, as you know, the show's mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, we just want to welcome you to our Kelly family. And if you're an aspiring leader like most of our audience members are, we just want to let you know we have a bevy of resources available. To access those, all you got to do, just send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I dot E-D-U. There, you can send us an email and ask to get in contact with one of our faculty. You can submit a question if you're an aspiring leader and you are struggling with what you would like to do or an answer that, that would help you and your organization grow, send us an email there. Or you just know of a person that's going to make a great guest for our conversation. Send us all that email. Again, that's ROIPod, R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I dot E-D-U. All right. So how many of us have ever worked on a project, put a bunch of blood, sweat, and tears into something, and we create this beautiful piece that we're getting a lot of praise for. Our organization is really excited about what we're doing, yet on the inside, we feel like, ah, this doesn't feel right. I don't feel like I deserve this. I feel that anybody could do this. Why are they recognizing me? To be honest, it's a feeling that a lot of leaders, especially some go-getter type leaders, I think feel more, it's a more common phenomenon than people might realize. And that's going to be the subject of our topic today. We have with us Carolyn Gurner, Aldi Distinguished Clinical Professor of Management from IU Bloomington here to talk to us about the imposter syndrome. Welcome, Carolyn, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, this idea that, you know, so many people put so much blood, sweat, and tears into, you know, their career, into a project, into something, and yet when they, when they achieve it, you know, you would think they'd feel accomplished, they'd feel relief, yet there's something that f- doesn't feel right. Well, talk about that for a minute. What's interesting about imposter syndrome is that it usually strikes the very people where you would be surprised that they even had a shred of doubt. Uh, it usually strikes really people with high ambition and really talented folks. And so when we look at the output and their products that they, that they share with people, we think these are truly exceptional people. And we believe it, but internally they don't. And that's where the imposter syndrome disconnect really comes in. Uh, we started to discover this in the early 1990s, and at that point, started gathering research. And it turned out that as the, the researchers started looking at the phenomenon, it became significantly more common than they thought. And so now we estimate that 70% of folks in professional capacities have felt an imposter syndrome feeling at some point in their career. And for about one in three, it happens at least once a week. 
So let's take a step back a bit because that is a huge, huge number. So, I yes. mean, that's two-thirds of the workforce feeling the sense of maybe not belonging, maybe they don't deserve it. Let's start with what is this imposter syndrome? Let's get some definition on this so we can all understand and start putting some um, traction to these feelings. Absolutely. Imposter syndrome, to, to, let's just start with the big things. It's not a mental disorder. Instead, it's more like a low-key dread it's a sense of being afraid that you're going to be exposed as a fraud. And some of the bigger symptoms include really looking at what you've done and only seeing what's wrong with it. Uh, my line is always, if when someone introduces you and talks about your credentials and you cringe and think you won't live up to those, that's imposter syndrome. If you walk into a meeting and sit and everyone in the meeting around you seems to have so much more to say and you feel hesitant about speaking up, even though you know you did your homework, that's imposter syndrome. So the idea is it's a sense of, of self-doubt that sort of permeates everything we do. It has a lot of different manifestations. It can keep people just from moving forward. It can keep them from doing anything. It can keep them in what we call the perfectionist mode. So they will obsess over mistakes. And if something isn't perfect, they'll believe that it just isn't worth anyone looking at. There's one called the natural genius. And it says, if whatever I'm trying to do doesn't come easily to me, I'm basically incompetent and incapable, and I should never try to do this again. And so there's so many different ways in which it manifests itself. But for me, the biggest is that it's an extra layer of stress that none of us need to constantly be second-guessing everything we do and what we are. You were saying something that was interesting that you would see that most people you would never realize have this imposter syndrome. So talk about, you know, some, some examples that you have or, you know, in your professional career of some people that we might be shocked to realize have this imposter syndrome. Well, my favorite was Maya Angelou. And one of the things that she was quoted as saying is, I've written 11 books and everything I write, I'm afraid somebody's going to come in and go, oh, she pulled a con. Those are pretty good. Uh, Tom Hanks is another person who suffers from imposter syndrome and says he hates watching himself. Uh, Tina Fey has said that every time she writes something, she's so relieved when people laugh at the jokes because she's never sure they're funny. Uh, so there are a lot of folks who bring those to the table. And to be perfectly candid, the reason I got interested in this is me. And I've got my own stories about how I've, I've worked with this for a very long time that really makes this pretty dear to my heart. You know, Carolyn, if I'm an executive, this could really concern me because, especially if I'm trying to build a diverse organization, does, does this impact individuals who come from communities that have been discriminated against more? Yes. And can that hold the back my ability as an executive to draw out their talent and truly enjoy the full benefit of a diverse team? I'm so glad you asked that question because the answer is a, a thorough yes in some circumstances. So one of the things that causes imposter syndrome is if we feel as if we stand out or if we feel like we don't fit in wherever we are, then we're going to feel more scrutinized and hence a little bit more insecure. So if I'm the only woman in a group of men, I'm going to have a sense of not feeling as confident or secure if I am someone who suffers from imposter syndrome. If I'm the only woman of color in a room, I've just taken that to a new level. And so the, to the extent that people really are seen to be different or unique in a situation, we see that happen. 
And so I think a lot of organizations have historically said, you know, we would really like to diversify. Let's hire one or two without recognizing that that's just a key setting those people up to not feel confident and secure in the workplace. There's no psychological safety there. Now, I know you were saying that you kind of, you fell in love with this research stemming through your own personal story. So mm-hmm. kind of walk us through, give us a, you know, the abbreviated tale of when you started to realize that, okay, maybe th- something's not right. Like I should be feeling accomplished. I should be feeling good, but all I can do is doubt because I got to be candid as well. I know these, these are a lot of the feelings when I was going through some of the uh, teaching and training that you, you offer, you know, I was starting to recognize it in myself. So I'd love to hear your, your journey as how you started to become aware. I'm from a small town outside of Bakersfield, California. Um, If you've ever read The Grapes of Wrath or seen the movie, that's where everyone wound up. So I was raised by a bunch of people from Oklahoma. I come by my y'alls, honestly. That being said, uh, coming from a small farm town, um, I immediately, when I tried to to break out, and I, I went through college on a debate scholarship, so not only was I someone who was trying to prove myself on a scholarship, I do not come from a family of means by any stretch of the imagination. And food insecurity was a thing for me as a kid. So the idea that I was in the same room with some of these folks at the University of Southern California who you know, drove cars that cost more than my house um, was a really intimidating, you know, really, really intimidating part of, of what I was trying to do. I was a really good debater. Um, national champion in impromptu speaking, very good at at policy debate. I mean, all of that was true. But every time I won any kind of award, I thought I was lucky. And it and I had an excuse for every award. Uh, it it perpetuated from there. Um, I was an HR consultant for 10 years, and I went into uh, a little company called Arthur Anderson. We can have an entirely different conversation about that. But um, <laughs> starting with them in what was their uh, very new, fledgling people consulting business, I am with a lot of accountants trying to explain why looking at human capital strategically is important. This is probably where I should tell you that my undergraduate degrees are in philosophy and religion. So I felt as if I was literally one article or one textbook ahead the first five years of my career. And it was, it was terrifying. So when I finally decided to go get my master's and then my PhD, that to me was going to be the silver bullet, right? That was, oh, well, if I have these degrees, you have to call me Dr. Carolyn. I got this. And instead, I realized that the first time I walked in and students were writing down what I was saying, I almost froze. It's like, wait a minute, I am telling them something that will shape the way they view the world? That's terrifying. And so the the first couple of years of teaching then had that whole sense of, oh, do I know enough to do this? Am I qualified to do this, et cetera? And it's only really been in the last five years or so, I guess there's benefits of getting old, um, but turning 50 or so really was about when I said, you know what, this is exhausting and I need to figure out what's going on. And that's really where the imposter syndrome research started. So I got a strange question, Carolyn. Oh, I love it. So what if somebody said, I want to get your reaction to this. Well, everything you're describing means that the individual has a healthy dose of humility. Mm-hmm. And that actually that humility is what propels them forward because a lot of times what holds people back from true success 
is ego. Yes. And this is like an ant this is like an antidote to the ego that holds you back. So therefore maybe having imposter syndrome is good for success. There are people who have argued that. Um, I think I think a healthy ego is necessary for success and that's part of the reason imposter syndrome gets in the way. But you've heard of hubris. It can go too far, right? And similarly imposter syndrome is humility gone to the gone too far to the extreme. So rather than just being a sense of I have I always have something to learn, I'm I'm always in that mindset, which is amazing and how we grow. Instead, imposter syndrome is I don't deserve to be here. I can't believe anyone would waste their time teaching me. I'm faking it, <laughs> etc. So it's it's almost you need to be in the middle is, is basically what it boils down to. And it's interesting because you were saying that a lot of this impacts like the high efficiency leaders, like the like, um, I guess you would say A type personalities yes. for a better, you know, for better label, you know, fill in whatever you want it to look like. So why is that? Why does it impact a lot of people who are more on the cusp, or you would think the people that you know, like the all star football player or the CEO who's you know crushing it, whether she is, whatever she's at, what what makes it so what, what makes people who are in that higher percentile so um, susceptible to be succumbed by this, I'm an imposter? I have two theories on that. Um, one is that when you're really good, you're always able to see ahead. And the people who are really talented can always see the things they're not doing. And so I think that's part of it. It's, it's the, the, the metaphor of I've climbed a mountain, and when I reach the peak, I can see the larger peaks ahead of me, and it, it keeps me in a sense of, of thinking I haven't done enough. That's one. But my, the one that I think I'd really like to explore a little bit more is the idea that it goes the other way, that I'm a high achiever because I have imposter syndrome. And instead, it's because I feel this constant need to try to prove myself and to try to get better. Um, and, and I feel like I'm consistently having to um, just, just try something and move something forward with an almost frenetic fear that this is the only way that I'm going to be valued. And so if, if people find themselves, their plate is completely full, and yet they're still taking on and, and even actively soliciting new projects at work, for example, that's usually a pretty good imposter syndrome idea because what they're saying is, I don't feel like what I'm doing is enough. And I never will. And so that's part of the reason that that becomes problematic. And you got into this a little bit, you know, so let's get into the, okay, let's, how do we identify it within ourselves? You, you kind of na started naming some of the types or some of the ways this imposter syndrome may, may manifest itself. So let's start talking about what are some of the common ways that way we can start taking a healthy look into the mirror and recognize, do, am I really wrestling with this or, or what, what's going on? Absolutely. So let me, let me throw some questions out and uh, see how people respond to those. The first one is, are you uncomfortable when people mention your accomplishments? So picture yourself being introduced to give a talk and people are talking about what you've done. Do you cringe? Are you embarrassed? Interestingly, that is that sense of, oh, everything that I've accomplished isn't real is, a, is one pretty big sign. Are you convinced that you have to keep proving your worth? that there will never be enough that you have done for people to be able to say, okay, you're, you're a professional whatever you are. Do you think that there is no threshold at which you will be good enough? That's a little scary. If you try to do something and it requires you to use your own voice, are you scared? In, in academia, 
what that means is, um, and, I, and I lived with this myself, whenever I write anything, I will over-cite references because I was so afraid that my own voice would be wrong that I would almost not put anything into a paper without somebody else's citation because I wanted to be really sure it was correct. And if it came from me, I wasn't sure. And Carolyn, I think maybe the way to frame this from the audience perspective is that if you truly want to be a top performer, what is your most limited resource? It's emotion, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just time, it's, it's your emotion, mm-hmm. emotional energy. And I think what you've described is very high-performing people, but they're, they're not being very efficient in their use of energy because they're over-worrying. And emotional energy that they could otherwise put into being at an even higher level, uh, function even better, they're holding themselves back because they're putting more energy in pre-unitive output of their leadership. Is that a is that a, is yes. that a way to appreciate it? I think that's there's a brilliant an, way to say it. There's an inherent inefficiency there that people maybe don't realize, and in fact, they see it as virtuous. Yes, and in fact, one of the things that uh, uh, um, one of the things that someone with imposter syndrome will often say is, "Well, if I work hard enough, and if I make myself valuable enough, then they'll have to keep me, even if I'm no good." And so that becomes kind of an interesting part of it as well. Sort of this, well, if, if I just put in enough effort, then I can make up for the fact that I'm not as smart or as talented or as you know, gifted as everybody else. It's wildly inefficient. So what, ca- like what gets down to what causes these, this syndrome? Or, you know, let's start really boiling down to where, where are we seeing it? Or what's causing it? Well, um, one of the big things that happens in childhood um, is that our, our parents and the people around us often start naming us. So you're the smart one, or you're the athletic one, or you're the talented one. And, and while we, we think we, we, we're doing some good stuff for ego development, to an extent we are, if the only time that we get attention and the only time that we perceive that we are getting positive feedback is when we're excelling at being the smart one, the athletic one, the artistic one, then we start to develop this belief that if we're not performing, we're not lovable. And that starts as a a very subtle message pretty early on. Um, From there, um, the the project that I'm working on right now really looks at a lot of the ways millennials were raised and how that can contribute to imposter syndrome. So um, I, I, I've got the tennis story for me is a really telling one. I played high school tennis, and what that meant was my junior year, I decided I wanted to do something, and I walked out on the court and picked up a racket. I'm 40 years out of high school. Nobody would, ex- would get that <laughs> experience here. Because today, if I wanted to play high school tennis, I would have had to start with a travel team when I was six in order to make that happen. And my parents probably would have been working with me to say, what are you good at? Is it tennis? Is it STEM? Is it dance? Is it math? What is it? And they would be trying to find something that I was good at. That means it had to be something that came pretty easily to me. So I get the message that if I have to work too hard at something, it means I'm incapable of doing it. So that becomes another way that this kicks in. Then it's the scrutiny of our performance that um, really became a part of the, the, the millennial upbringing. I laugh because in my high school, if my parents had wanted to come watch me play tennis, there was nowhere for them to sit. And today, you have parents who are filming every moment that their child is, is on the court. So if I double faulted my way through a set in high school, I'd go home and start dinner, and my parents would say, how'd it go? Not so good. <laughs> But if that happened today, or if that happened 20 years ago even, 
I would have to spend all of dinner basically having my serve broken down to talk about the ways where I wasn't performing very well. That's a lot of pressure. It's just a lot of pressure. So that's a, that's a component of it as well. And then we do have to put some blame on social media. I mean, when I am sitting seeing everybody else's beautifully choreographed, duck face lit selfies, and in my mind, I have my own bloopers and outtake reels of the stupid things I did today, that's, that's a, just an unrealistic comparison. And I think while we logically know that, emotionally, it's really hard to remember. So let's get into, start swinging it into like our takeables, our actionables, because, you know, we sat here, we defined this imposter syndrome, and what we want to do and we strive is to have some actionable insight into how do we overcome. So let's get into some of the, some of the steps and how do we start to overcome this imposter syndrome? The first step we're doing right now, because we got to talk about it. I think the important thing is for people to realize that this feeling is not their dirty little secret that it's something that other people share, that it's something that is actually more common than they think, and frankly, that it's really something that can bond us together as opposed to making us feel separate from one another. So it takes people like Tom Hanks and Maya Angelou and Tina Fey to say, I feel imposter syndrome, and this is how I work through it, and it's okay. Um, So talk about it, absolutely, number one. The second thing is, and this especially comes true for managers and organizations as well, we've got to make it okay for people to take risks and make mistakes. And we know that that's a hallmark of a learning culture. We know that that's a hallmark of a healthy organization. But it does something for individuals, too, that says your thoughts are valuable even when they don't result in what we think they will. (laughs) And so that whole mentality of a learning organization absolutely critical. We have to to kind of remind people of why they're feeling the way they're feeling. And I think that's another thing that's really helpful is being able to step back and say, well, this is happening to me because, and I had these experiences and that's the story. And, and, And really being able to get their hands around why they're feeling the way they're feeling is helpful. But fundamentally, it kind of comes down to, um, I I tell people sometimes if the perfectionist is the one that grabs them, on purpose, send an email with a very small comma in the wrong place and let yourself be okay with that. Um, I'm not saying give the wrong numbers to a client, but but I'm saying you get yourself to the point where being good enough and doing things to a level that is excellent but not perfect is okay. That takes day to day work. Uh, But most important, I think, is finding yourself a support system, being able to be honest with those people about what you feel. And again, that's why I think mentoring is so important. And I think it's interesting because, you know, a lot of this stems around that relationships and getting the right people in in your circle. And I mean, that's true for a lot, wherever you sit in organizations and team development. And that gets into, okay, well, you know, I because I already wrestle with this insecurity, even though I'm crushing it out there, even though if I looked at the charts and I looked at the numbers and we put it on a PowerPoint presentation, every indicator would say, Excel, Excel, Excel. Yet the feeling is I don't. So how do we, you know, start to invite the right people into that conversation? Because obviously you, you know, you could invite someone in and they're just telling you, just get over it. Like, what are you you doing? You're crushing it. Just get over it. But yet, you do kind of have to have that right person, that right voice. So how do you delineate and, and start thinking of 
who can be in that circle with me? I think there's a couple of things um, that are, first of all, yes, <laughs> what you just said is absolutely critical. And I think there's a couple of things that, that could help us move forward there. And candidly, first, it relies on old farts like me. Um, we have got to be comfortable as people who are in positions where folks are looking to us and thinking, wow, you're crushing it. It's on us to say, yes, and I'm not always secure about how I'm doing. And sometimes I have really bad days. And some days I can't believe that people just wrote in a notebook what I said out loud. And we've got to be able to say that and have that be okay. Um, so what we need is not only for people who are younger and kind of just coming to terms with what's happening to step up and say, I, I'm feeling this. But they need to find a safe space and some psychological connection and psychological safety with older people who are willing to talk about it. And so um, yeah, I, I don't want people to create an imposter feeling or anything like that. But um, I, I just really would like for us to have more of a dialogue around it. Uh, I am particularly moved when I hear men come forward because um, even though this is slightly more prevalent in women, it's not a girl thing. And so I think the more that, that senior people who are very thoughtful, um, you know, the Tom, Tom Hanks types of the world, right, can come forward and say, hey, I feel this. And we can all then sort of relax and go, oh, I'm normal. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point because I think, you know, it, it actually becomes a more humanizing conversation because when you, you know, if you're looking up to someone it, through the, through the starry eyed, you know, just mentor eyes, you look at people with, you see someone who is, they're perfect. They can't do anything wrong. I mean, they have that Instagram filter on their eyes where, you know, you look through someone's feed and I mean, everything is perfect. The perfect kids, perfect this. But then when you have someone who you do look up to says, actually, like I do struggle with that. Not only is it, I mean, I believe just through my own experience, you know, is it freeing as an organizational leader, as a leader, you get to let things off your chest and kind of, you know, feel, feel a sense of trust with your team, but your team sees you as, okay, wow. Like he's actually, he's actually human being yes. instead of, you know, some super unachievable person in the clouds. Well, I, I think the message is feel the fear and do it anyway. And there's so many times where we feel like we do it, but we can't show that we felt the fear. And if more people would say, yeah, I'm not 100% confident in this, but this is the best guess I've got, let's go. I think it would be really, well, the word I keep using is humanizing. Absolutely. Carolyn, thank you so much for being our guest today on our show. This was Carolyn Gurner, the Aldi Distinguished Clinical Professor of Management here for the Kelly School of Business. If you want to get more and you want to go deeper into how to overcome this imposter syndrome, go to LinkedIn Learning and be sure to search Overcoming the Imposter Syndrome. There you can find a whole course that Carolyn teaches all about this topic and the steps you can take to overcome. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, alongside Associate Dean Phil Powell. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week. Music